We've made it to our final wisdom book this summer. Uh, we're entering the book of Job, and we'll be here for the last few weeks of summer. And so uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn to the middle of Job, Job 19. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 23 uh, through 29. And I'll be going into more context of where this passage sits in the book. But just so you know, this, this passage comes at the end as Job is... Uh, expressing uh, his circumstances, expressing his situation to his friends. Uh, and he says this at the very end. And so, uh, hear the word of the Lord for you, his church, this morning. This is Job speaking. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall, I shall see God, whom I shall see from myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know that there is a judgment. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is a lamp into our feet, and it's a light into our path. So I pray by it this morning that you would challenge us, that you would change us, that you would transform us and shape us. Lord, help us see you today. Cloud out all the distractions, and Lord, would you hide me behind your cross so that only you might be seen and glorified this day. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know we all have these moments where we see something for the first time and it changes everything about your life. And I had, I've had many moments in my life uh, like this, but none probably more than uh, the day when uh, we exited off I-75, exit 144 under Richard B. Russell Parkway in Fort Valley, Georgia, and I stepped into uh, a Bucky's convenience store for the very first time. I had never seen such a combination of a barbecue stand, a gas station, a Hobby Lobby, uh, an amusement park energy where you had adoring kids and groaning parents all in one place at the same time. Uh, it was so impressive. And I had one bite of a brisket sandwich and, you know, that was enough to hook me. And then they passed me the beaver nuggets and the beef jerky and uh, this place just kept getting better and better. But what really did it for me was in the middle of the store, there is hot cinnamon glazed pecans. And it was, it, now every travel snack I have after this is pales in comparison. And so truly, Bucky's has changed the way that my wife and I travel. And uh, this is absolutely true. I have been known to plan trips and routes based on where a Bucky's uh, can be found. In October of 2022, there was a traffic jam on I-75, and we were coming back home from Presbytery. It had been a long weekend. We were ready to get home. I willingly drove us into an hour and a half traffic jam so I could go to Bucky's to get my cinnamon glazed pecans. Uh, I have been known that when we are driving and we see the line of cars out onto the highway, I am more willing to go get in that line because I know, you know what, that must mean the brisket is really fresh today. And I confess to you uh, that on Wednesday, 
when I was picking up our Kenya team after they had traveled for over 28 hours straight that we drove on I-75 just out of the slight chance that they might want a reintroduction to America by walking into a Bucky's. And spoiler alert, they did not. That was only partly a joke. Bucky's has changed the way that we travel, and it's all back to that first impression that I had uh, walking into it. The things that we see can orient everything about us, and uh, there are much more serious examples of this. Right? Think about all of the work that your children or yourself have put in for that one day when you get to see them put on a cap and gown and walk across the stage how you're willing to orient your entire life around that, about the way you orient your lives so that you can have that vision on that first ultrasound when you see that your family is about to grow, how you orient your whole life just to see something like that, right? There are things that we long to experience in life, things that we long to see in the future that we are willing to orient our entire lives around. And and it's no different when it comes to our faith. And in fact, when it comes to our relationship with God, the thing that animates our faith the most, the thing that brings our faith alive the most is what theologians over the centuries uh, have called the beatific vision. Uh, Every seminarian just like cheered that I brought that up in a sermon. You probably all groaned of like, that's a really technical term. But in layman's terms, the beatific vision is simply the sight that makes happiness the sight that makes happiness. And in essence, what that means is that what gives our walk with God life is the simple promise that one day we will see God. We will see God. We will know him face to face. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. And throughout the Bible, what we see is countless stories where men and women of faith, they know God, but they don't get to see God directly. They know him from a distance God rests behind the veil. Moses has to turn his back so that he can't see God face to face because he couldn't survive it. But all of scripture is building to this one moment where we are no longer held back, where we no longer see God behind the veil, but we see God as he truly is. And this vision is gonna be glorious and fulfilling and it is going to satisfy the longing of every human heart the sight that makes happy, this beatific vision. And I bring this up today because as we begin the book of Job, it's this promise, this promise of a beatific vision, which helps us have context for how Job deals with his unexplainable suffering uh, that we read about in the book of Job. And a quick summary, since we're getting started in this book, Job uh, is a righteous man who Satan comes to God and wants to tempt Uh, because Satan believes that Job is only worshiping God for the things that God gives him rather than who God is. And so God allows Satan uh, to take away all of the good things in his life, all his property, all his children, all his health. And this book uh, is much longer than that story, but it is the wrestling of Job with his three friends, uh, asking the question, why would God do this? And we're going to explore that question a lot more over the course of the next few weeks. But in chapter 19, uh, we come to a specific declaration of Job as he's talking with his friends. And uh, the passage is that Job has once again described uh, the anguish and the suffering and the pain that he's going through. Uh, But he's also declared his innocence before God. He's a righteous man. He hasn't done anything wrong. And 
what Job begins to declare is a promise. It's a promise. And that promise is not one that simply sticks to the book of Job. Uh, but it's one that all who follow in Job's faithful footsteps also share in. And that promise is actually best summed up by Jesus in Matthew 5 when he's uh, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, when he says that the pure in heart shall see God. And what we realize is that this is the foundation. This is the foundation of how Job views his world. This is what orients everything for him. Uh, and at this summer, as we've been seeking wisdom, as we've been seeking what it means to be wise followers of Jesus, this vision, this promise ought to be what orients everything for us. This promise that we will know and see God. And when we have that, that can help us live a life that is more completely freeing and new than we ever thought possible. And so that's what I want us to explore this morning. How can this promise of a beatific vision, a sight that makes happy, the promise that we will know and see God change the way that you walk out the door this morning. And I think we see three ways uh, that that happens. And the first thing that we see uh, in God is a sight of eternity, a sight of eternity. And uh, once again, this passage comes at the end of a series of statements where Job is rehearsing the suffering he has to endure to his friends. And one of the main issues that the friends are wrestling with Job about is the matter of Job's culpability, the matter of his culpability. And what Job's friends believe is as they watch their friends suffer is that Job has done something wrong, that Job has angered God. And that Job is unwilling to repent of something. And so God is simply punishing Job until he does the right thing and owns up to his mistake. And as you read the book of Job, not just in this passage, but throughout the entire book, what you get from these friends, you get the sense uh, that the way that they view God, the way they understand God is that God is very, um, he works very temporarily in the life of his people. Meaning he works very much based on the present moment. Right? God's rewards are given to the ones who do good things, and uh, they're mostly physical in nature, land, uh, children, uh, livestock. Uh, and God punishes those who do bad uh, and takes those things away. Uh, but God is always working with the immediate moment in mind. Right? God is always working with the present in mind. And that is honestly where the book of Job begins to blow up traditional wisdom. Because we know from being outside the story of seeing the full picture that Job is a righteous and innocent man. And that God has not allowed these things as a retributive act against Job to get Job for something that he's done wrong. But actually it's out of a more eternal motive. Satan has come questioning whether Job would worship if God allowed for everything to be stripped away. Right? Job only worships you, God, because of the things that you give him. Right? Not because of who you are. And God allows Job to be tempted and to lose these things to show Satan the error of his judgment. And it's this reality that Job begins to echo in his declaration of his promise when he says this, And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet I will see God. See, in God... What Job sees is that his life is not actually just a sum of his current circumstances. 
that his relationship with God is not just currently a sum of his current circumstances, but actually that his life is meaningful in eternity because the God he knows is eternal. And I think that's a really big thing for Job to recognize and for us as well, because I think so often if we're honest with ourselves and maybe putting words to it, what we do is we often shrink God down. We restrict God, his actions and his dealings and how, we've, how we think he thinks about us and how we think about him to just the day in and day out specific moments of our life. And we act like God is not bigger than our current circumstances, right? Think about this. You do something wrong. I know I've felt this before. You do something wrong and then a couple bad things happen after that. And in your mind, you go, well, God is only punishing me for that one thing that I did, right? God, God doesn't have any bigger reason. He just wants to get back at me for that one thing that I did. Or maybe you want God to be in the moment, right? You see something bad happening and you want God to fix it right now, right? And God chooses not to. Or maybe uh, you want a blessing or you want something from God and you're like, God, I want it right now. I don't want to wait for it. Right? God, you're in the wrong for not giving it to me right now, right? It's this narrow vision of right now. Right now with God is the only thing that matters. And it's the only thing that we can see. It's like tunnel vision. And to illustrate what I'm talking about uh, a little bit more uh, go back to when I was in high school uh, during golf season, we got a text from my coach. Uh, and golf season was in the fall, so we would prep for our season during the summertime. And uh, my coach one day texts our team and says, hey, you're going to go do summer conditioning workouts. Uh, and I played golf, friends. Uh, golfers don't do summer conditioning workouts. And the first text in the text class with my teammates was like, are we are we in trouble? Like, did somebody go do something that they weren't supposed to do this summer? Like, uh, is our coach mad at us? Because the only thing we could think about was our coach wants us to go do summer conditioning workouts. So obviously he's mad at us. But what we didn't give benefit of the doubt to was that my coach had a bigger picture in mind for why he wanted us to do summer conditioning workouts. Because one, we were going to put our clubs on our back we were going to walk 18 holes multiple times a week for the next few months. And he wanted us to be mentally alert and ready for the heat that we were going to deal with in the middle of Florida in August. Right? So where me and my friends went wrong is that we thought, you know what? Our coach has such a narrow vision. We didn't see how he saw the full picture. See, when we live into the promise that we will see God, it forces us to see things in an eternal sense, because God is eternal. Our lives are more than now. Our lives are more than now, and God knows that, right? Job intrinsically knew that. C.S. Lewis once said, and I love this quote in The Weight of Glory, he says, you've never met a mere mortal. Everyone is going to live forever, whether in heaven or in hell. And so when we see God, when we get a sense of his eternity, that our lives are more than just now, what we see is that, you know, Job's reward, his vindication, it may not come immediately. Yet because God was eternal, Job was content that it didn't have to. See, friends, we live and we trust in a God who is bigger than now. And if we're ever going to get comfortable with the mystery of who God is, and wrestle with those tensions, this is a big step to make, that God is bigger than sometimes we make him out to be.
And his view on the scope of our lives is a lot bigger. And frankly, it's an eternal view on our lives. And that's something we oftentimes can't see or we can't even comprehend. And so what that ought to do, like it led Job, is that leads us to trust. So one, we see a sight of eternity, but two, we see a sight of vindication. See a sight of vindication. And uh, going back to verses 25 through 27, Job says these words, for I know that my redeemer lives and at last he will stand upon the earth. See, part of the reason why this promise of seeing God, this beatific vision, is so powerful is because of what that means. And it means two things. One, Job, by saying this, realizes that he will have a judge over him who knows the full story, who has all the cards, who understands everything that's happened. But second, and maybe even more powerful, is that in Job's suffering, he knows that at one point, God will make himself pleased to reveal himself to Job. That God will make himself known. That God will reign over all of creation, but also will allow Job to see him, to come into his presence. And why is that powerful? Why, why do I make a big deal about that? Well, because isn't that a powerful moment? Those moments when you are truly seen by someone, when you're truly known by someone, that can change your whole world, right? When you finally meet someone who sees into the fluff and the facade that you've been trying to put up, right? You know somebody who sees you for all the muck and the dirtiness that you try to hide. Someone who sees you, but then also welcomes you to come. That, that person who knows you fully and loves you fully, like we talked about a few weeks ago in the Song of Solomon, that's the beauty of a promise of a beatific vision, that not only do you get to see God, but that God sees you. In Disney's uh, Meet the Robinsons, which I still believe is the best movie uh, that they've ever made that nobody really knows about, uh, it's at the end of this movie, uh, this boy goes and travels and he saves the future. I'm not going to spoil it for you, hopefully, but he comes back and he meets all of these people uh, that he had seen in the future doing incredible things. And he gets to meet them at the end of the movie as they are in his time. And he walks up to this girl and this girl is sharing uh, all about her vision of what she wants to do in the future. And it's really funny uh, and it's really crazy. Uh, she wants to have frogs sing. And she's telling him all about it. She's really excited. And then you see her eyes glaze over. And she's like, you know, people often say that I'm crazy. And then she kind of gets in a defensive posture and she goes, you think I'm crazy too, don't you? And the main character says, no. No, I don't. And you see this girl's face change. And it lights up. Why? Because someone had seen her. Someone hadn't brushed her aside. Someone had seen her value. And part of the underlying current of the book of Job, it isn't explicitly stated, but you can sense it a couple times in the book, is that God still sees Job. Right? The friends constantly are saying that God has completely abandoned you unless you rectify your wrongs. And yet Job never abandons trust in the enduring love of God. That God has not completely abandoned him. And Job is honest. He can't think of a reason for his circumstances. 
He's wrestling. He's struggling. God, why would you do this? And he lets God know it on a handful of occasions in the book. But it doesn't mean that God has completely forsaken him. And that's the same promise that we hold on to as well. Job didn't know who Jesus was. This isn't a prophetic passage in that sense where Job has, knows exactly who the Redeemer is, that it's Jesus, that he's going to come to earth and die for our sins. Job doesn't necessarily know that. But what he does know is who God is. And this is an echo. This is an echo of the Old Testament of God's love, which comes to fullness in the love of Christ. Right? That part of the power of God's love, the part of why it's so incredible is that as big as God is, as transcendent as he is, he wants to reveal himself to us. He wants to be known. We will see his face and maybe even better, he sees us. Right? That's why when I close services with the ironic benediction, that's why I love it so much, is we say the line, may his face shine upon you. May God's face shine upon you, right? We will see God and we will know him and he'll see us, right? That he's not absent or distanced, right? He's not a hidden God that we have to go looking for to make sense of our circumstances and that your questions, when you raise them to God, they're not big enough questions to scare him off, right? God loves God doesn't abandon his people. And we see the fullest extent of that love, the fulfillment of that love when God came near. God put on skin and he lived in the suffering and the pain of this world alongside us, right? The power, the one who had the power to redeem, the one who had the power to justify came and he did just that, right? For I know that my redeemer lives and at last he will stand upon the earth and in my flesh, after my flesh is stripped away, yet I will see God. Final thing that we see after a sight of indication and a sight of eternity is a sight of sovereignty. And I want to add on to that fact that God sees us and that also as we read in Romans this morning, that God is for us. Right, look at how Job finishes uh, this passage. Right? He says he will see God, and then he starts talking about judgment, and that the ones who have come against Job, the ones who have falsely accused Job, will suffer the judgment. And so we see that God sees eternally, God knows us, and that ultimately God is for his people. Uh, I read an article in the, the, this weekend in The Atlantic about uh, luxury wedding planners, and it was a hilarious article, and uh, the lead of this article was extremely funny. It starts like this. Uh, on Sundays, we pray. Not because we're pious, but on Sundays, couples figure out if they're happy or not. Uh, and if they're not, Monday, they decide who to blame. And I think that that's just so uh, reticent of our culture nowadays, because we live in a culture where we want to blame somebody, don't we? We want to be able to put blame on other people, right? We out of this hunger and maybe the sinful perversion of what we think justice is, right? We want to blame others. Sometimes because we want justice, rightfully, but also sometimes because we want to push the blame off of us. And so it's just a lot easier to blame somebody else than ourselves. But we love to play this blame game with ourselves, with other people. And I think that's why we have such a polarized world today is because for every human issue, we have to have someone to blame. 
right? Justice is in our hands and we need to bring it about ourselves. And that's part of what makes Job such a great book and so perplexing because Job is about an innocent God and an innocent man, a righteous, innocent man who endures suffering permitted by God. And what his friends are hungering for the entire book is justice. They want to put the blame on someone and they're not going to go put it on God. So they're blaming Job for the issue, right? Job, you need to fess up. Surely you're the one responsible for this. And they can't wrap their minds around anything else. And yet this final statement from Job shows that he sees the world entirely differently because he will see God. And because God knows him, he trusts in God's sovereignty that even though he doesn't understand what's happening, all things will work together for his good, like Romans says. Right? Those who falsely accuse will one day reap the consequences. And later on in the book of Job, Job learns that he uh, is not responsible for the course of the world, but he can trust in the one that is. Right? He doesn't have to play this blame game he doesn't have to pass the blame, but he can trust in God, even in, if in the moment he doesn't quite understand what's happening to him. He trusts that one day, maybe not now, maybe not in his lifetime, but one day God will set things right. God is just. God is good. And that's what Job sees in the later chapters when Job is actually confronted by God from a whirlwind. Right? What does God say? To summarize it all, I'm in control and you're not. And friends, that's a good thing because that God who's in control, that God is working for us, right? Job never curses God in this book and he never, he never gets that far. Why? Because deep down he is trusting that God still is in control, that God has not left his throne, that God has not become powerless to save and if God is who Job knows he is, he knows that even if he can't understand it, there might be a reason to his suffering. God still might, as Romans says, work all things for the good of those who love him. And so when we see God, we see a God who's in control, and that's not a reason to fear, but a reason to trust. I'll close with this. Uh, my family often tells this story at Christmas time. Uh, just because it's a really embarrassing story about myself. But when I was four years old, uh, my parents did something so vile and so disgusting that it required me to take matters in my own hand as a four-year-old, uh, and I ran away from home. And that's my family made spaghetti for dinner. And so I packed up my blankie and my Halloween candy that I was going to live on, and I walked out the front door, walked down the street to a curb where I was going to begin my new life. Uh, and that lasted really well for about 10 minutes when I realized the full extent of what I had done uh, and began to cry. And I didn't know it at the time. I couldn't see it, but my dad never let me leave his sight. Uh, he walked up the street and he always kept me in view. He was gonna let me come to the realization of my situation myself, but boy, did I cry when the, that realization set in and I saw that my dad wasn't too far behind. And so friends, Job is a book about the depths of human suffering and the mystery of the sovereignty of God. I don't want to mix words. It's a mystery. And yet for all of those questions that Job will have and that we'll wrestle with, one thing that he held sure, that he would know and see God 
No, it may not be immediate, but one day he would see the face of God with steadfast love. And as we lead our own lives with that same promise, how does that change us? See, that night when I saw my dad, it was a realization of comfort and of joy and not of fear. See, dad was coming not to punish, but to save. And in so much more, how can we live in the promise that one day we will see and know God fully, not seeing him coming to judge, but to come and save, that one day our Redeemer would stand upon the earth, and that in our flesh we will see God. Doesn't that change everything? I think it does. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that this is the promise that we hold tightly to, that one day we will see you and that you know us, that you see us. So Lord, we pray that even now that that would transform us, that our lives would gain new perspective, that our hearts would grow, that we would trust you even when we're questioning and we're doubting and we're struggling. Lord, because we know that who you are is a good and faithful and steadfast God who loves his children. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.